Welcome back to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the DocSF Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefano Bini, your host for this podcast and the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. Now, in this podcast, we will hear from Fabrizio Billy, Director of Orthopedic Research at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And as you know, Fabrizio is heading up DocSF Science, a journal club style segment where we review the top three translational research papers from over 300 that he and his team reviewed. In this section, Fabrizio tackled sensors as well as AR, VR, and mixed reality. And he was joined by Corey Callendine, Jeffrey Lotz, Sigurd Bervin, and Louis Rosenberg. Hey, let's join these guys on the DocSF stage in San Francisco. Hello, everybody. Again, here for science. Very excited. So today we have the second segment of science, which is going to be on sensors in uh, extended reality, virtual reality. We have some great panelists with me and also I have uh, Lee Grossman from OREF. Come on, Lee. (laughs) Here you are. We have for the panel, we have Jeff Lotz from UCSF. And Corey Callendine. Oh, here you are. Fantastic. Guys, have a seat. I remind you that we still have Slido going on. So, you know, you will uh, please answer those, those questions and then evaluate the papers so that we can select a winner. So let's start. Lee, you want to say something about yourself in OREF? Yeah, I'm with uh, OREF. And for those of you that don't know who we are, we're the largest independent organization that funds uh, orthopedic research. We, uh, in our 65-year history, we've done about $150 million of uh, grants, and about uh, 40, which is about 4,700 uh, research and educational grants that uh, we've funded over the years. We can't do this by ourselves. We collaborate with over 60 organizations. And one of the reasons we're here is that we're expanding using our very detailed, rigorous scientific uh, process for approving grants. We're looking for opportunities to partner as well with private equity, venture capital industry, et cetera. Right now, we have about 100 uh, grants that we're managing with a street value of about $8 million. So please come to our our website, oref.org. We have money to give. We have grant cycles going on most of the year. So there's money there available for you. And also go there because all of you here, your families, your neighbors, everyone has benefited mightily from the research that OREF has done over its 65 years and the work that we continue to do. We're 100% donor funded. So please go there and give generously. (laughs) Thank you. Jeff. Hi, my name is Jeff Lotz. I'm vice chair of research in orthopedic surgery. I'm a bioengineer by training and have gotten more interested in in data sensors uh, in relationship to musculoskeletal pain. It's part of an initiative via HEAL. So there's some fun topics, I think, that'll come out of this conversation informed by that uh, experience. Corey. Uh, yes, uh, Corey Callendine. I'm the uh, token uh, orthopedic surgeon on the panel. So <laughs> thanks for that. I think uh, Beanie actually sent the email to the wrong person, but uh, I'm, I'm honored to be with you. I thought one of the exhibitors said it well. I was walking around. She said, 
what are you doing here? I said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And uh, she said, well, why are you here? And I said, I'm still trying to answer that. So <laughs> hopefully we'll provide some clinical context into what you're doing. I can tell you my eyes have been open wide to what is out there. And hopefully, Dr. Beanie and I were just talking about this, hopefully we can get more clinicians involved so that this process, all everything you know, this process and research that you're doing, we can help speed it up and be more efficient with it. So hopefully we'll see some of that today. Perfect. So let's start. Uh, our first paper, Osteosurface Electronics, Thin, Wireless, Battery-Free, and Multimodal Musculoskeletal Biointerface. So the objective of this paper was development of a new class of a wireless battery-free device uh, to be used as a diagnostic and therapeutic platform. Corey. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you started with me. Um, <laughs> I was just in clinic uh, on Tuesday thinking about how can I provide a stable optical, electromagnetic, mechanical impedance model for my patients? And the study popped up. So <laughs> look, here's the reality. There, there was a speaker yesterday that talked about the third cause of death is medical errors. I looked that up last night. That's no longer true. It's been challenged by Yale. Third most common cause of death is actually COVID for last year. We can argue about that later. But one in two are heart disease and cancer, as you well know. But fragility fractures, so fractures of pathological bone, account for more hospital days than MIs, breast, and prostate cancer. So bone health is a major issue. And the reality is, is we don't know a ton about bone health. And our delays and ability to evaluate, like this says, uh, diagnostically uh, evaluate the patient, but also evaluate our interventions are somewhat limited. So what, what this study did is they actually bonded a sensor, as I understand it to the bone with calcium phosphate uh, cement beads, essentially. They used some growth factors. So they adhered this sensor to the bone itself. It was stable at a week. It was uh, perfectly ingrown about 27 days and could constantly give you information about strain across the bone and several other things, in, including, like I mentioned earlier, electromagnetic field, which we use for fracture union. So I think there's real potential with this technology because it's uh, an implantable and it communicates through an NFC. Now, NFCs is something you guys know about, but but I don't really, although I learned that I wear one on my wrist. I actually come to these conferences and if you if you hold your phone up to my wrist now, it will give you my contact information. So So it's technology. This is what I liked about the article. It's technology that's already available. Every iPhone can communicate in this way and they buried that in the sensor. Perfect. Great, it's a great summary. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, looking at it in a slightly different perspective, I think that what's interesting about this is it's, I think an example, and the other articles are maybe similarly so, uh, of a technology that is being, you know, the envelope is being pushed here. What's interesting is they've got multiple sensors in one device. So you, they're not only measuring bone strain, strain, but they're measuring temperature and they have the ability to actually implement some treatment response through the, LED that's can also be controlled. The question is, how do you get to the next step of moving this type of a technology and, and align it with a clinical indication that's compelling from a business case? So if somebody's going to invest in, in really trying to understand how this is going to get used, because it wasn't clear to me in the article about why they picked temperature strain and this uh, optical sensor. And so there may be some rationale for those three that could be aligned clinically. It's a very local footprint. So can you, do you need multiple of these? You know, how long does it have the measurement have to be collected? And then the, the big challenge uh, with uh, these sensors is the dimension reduction or feature engineering. You know, what comes out of the time series data that 
gives a clinician a red, green, yellow light that tells them that there's something that needs to happen. And that component really requires close communication with clinicians. And, uh, you know, I see we have a, a similar a communication gap as we had with engineers and clinicians 30 years ago who wanted to understand stress and strain. And now it's with data scientists and trying to understand, um, you know, the, the ability for the tools to extract information, but in the context that clinicians find actionable. So I, I think this is uh, going to push us to getting to that stage. I'm wondering if there's anybody in this audience that has worked with a similar technology. I'm not surprised. I, I found found it fascinating. Uh, the ingenuity that went behind this is uh, really remarkable. Uh, but I have the same question that you have. How do we how do we translate this from an animal model to actual clinical practice? Uh, I think uh, probably the engineering aspects of it in terms of sensors and uh, uh, the electronics are there, but what are the measurements? I mean, do we understand micro-straining? Do we know the modularity for the bone stimulation uh, that they're saying is uh, perhaps uh, therapeutic? And um, so what will it take to get to that, to that level, just understanding what those measurements should be uh, so that uh, this will work properly? Let's switch to the second one. Stretchable and suitable fiber sensor for wireless monitoring of connective tissue strain. The objective was to reduce the mismatch between sensor and tissue organs. Propose a wireless and suitable fiber straining sensing system to monitor biomechanical strain continuously. Ori. Well, yeah, thanks again for starting with me. I would share with you clinically, we don't know a lot about ligament strain. I can tell you in a total knee replacement, uh, when your surgeon puts in your knee replacement or your loved one's knee replacement, we put all the parts in there and then we kind of wiggle it back and forth in order to assess the ligament tension. It's a fairly imprecise science, and it's one of the reasons why surgical disciplines uh, really do have quite the flavor of art and not science. This has the ability to assess the tension across the ligament, not, not only intraoperatively, but also postoperatively. There is some good sensor work being done, the pressure across the joint intraop and how you can make uh, changes to implants, but understand that's non-weight bearing. And so the ability to be able to to measure tension across these ligaments, I think could provide great value. I'll let the other guys explain how in the world uh, they did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this this one and the next, I think, are similar in the in the sense that they're you know pretty simple. It's a capacitor that, as you stretch this, the configuration of those wires changes, and then the capacitance between them change, and then the resonance frequency of the whole system changes. So they look at the peak resonant frequency, and that tells you what the elongation is. And so it's a relative measurement. It's not an absolute. So you're looking at a change over time. So we'll need to obviously learn about, you know, how it's well, it's sutured. It wasn't quite clear to me how they're going to do that. But if it's changing over time, is it, you know, really the ligament that's changing or is there something about the, the way this thing is tied down? But I think that's really could be valuable information, particularly in the short term period after a procedure. And you're trying, particularly if you had ligament balancing with something that was part of the procedure, you can uh, determine how that's proceeding. Not to bias the uh, rankings that people are going to have on this, but I, th this technology was really uh, just beyond belief for me. And uh, in, in a positive way, uh, I, I can see potentially the clinical advantages uh, that this would provide uh, the, the feedback in, in, in such small measures and, and and individual tendons and muscles. I mean, it just, it seems like it has unlimited application, but it goes back to my previous question of, do we know what we're actually measuring? And th that's going to have to be uh, 
uh, figured out first. And again, I want to ask the audience here, particularly the clinicians, from what you've heard so far, is this something that you would be interested in? Raise hands if you are. Two hands. All right. Let's go to the next one. Smart fracture plate for quantifying fracture healing. So the objective here is to distinguish between phases of fracture healing, and they are measuring those forces with a smart fracture. Sorry. Yeah, now this one actually makes sense to me. If I had more time, I'd go back and explain the capacitance uh, equation from the last article, but pressing on here, this one actually makes a lot more sense. So, so this is literally a sensor embedded into the plate to see how much strain is in the plate itself. So obviously this is, an, this is an implant that's going to fail if the bone never heals, just to be quite simplistic about it. But again, I'll share you the color from the orthopedic surgeon perspective. If you have a fracture, now I think the one in the picture, if you go back a slide, the one in the picture has a defect. So this would be like a comminuted fracture. So the two bones are actually spanning a gap, right? So all the force, all the pressure is going through the plate, producing a very significant uh, bend on that plate. So what they've done is they place the center, the sensor at, the, at that area of the plate that's going to see the most, most bending force. Again, I defer to my colleagues to the left to explain what in the world they're measuring. But the reality is, is that metal plate will eventually fail if it's asked to take the entire load. So what they did is they said, well, let's evaluate these stages of healing. So there is primary bone healing where, where the bone ends actually are sitting beside each other. The bone grows straight across, but they're trying to simulate secondary bone healing, meaning forming with callus, right? So you get this, uh, well, there's a gap to start, and then it fills in with this fibrous tissue, which I think they simulated by silicone. And then finally, bone callus fills it in. I think they used a cement or some, some other uh, surrogate. This is all in the lab, mind you. But they were able to show in that graph, blue, orange, gray, the decreasing strain through the plate or tension, or I'm probably using the wrong word there, I apologize, but the decreased forces through the plate itself. So how we on the orthopedic side do it now is we say, ah, your fracture's not very comminuted. Maybe you'll start walking at three weeks. Or we say, oh man, that thing was really blown apart. We're going to wait until six weeks. Because the reality is, is we don't know how much force is going through the bone versus through the plate. So this would have immediate clinical application once we figure out what those forces are across the plate and what the plate can tolerate. You could advance their weight bearing a lot faster based on their individual healing. And this, I think this is a good example of, of kind of matching the push and the pull, the push of the inventor and the pull of the clinician. I think they did a good job with this. I'm good friends with Eric Ledad, and that little sensor that's shown on the upper left there is, was kind of developed with another application in mind. And as an example of another use case, they have one of the graduate students learned that it's uh, this, the signal is moisture sensitive. And so now they have a sensor they're developing to put in adult diapers to monitor whether or not in a nursing facility they should be changed. So I think he's done a good job of trying to think about what's the use going to be? How do I optimize the sensor for the application? What they've shown here is a little way to clip this thing to the side of an implant. It doesn't have to be built into the implant specifically. So you can imagine there's adapters that can go on multiple different kinds of implants that are basically using the same sensor. So I really appreciated that aspect of this. Yeah, of the uh, three articles that are being reviewed here, this one is probably the least impressive in terms of the technology advances, but in terms of its clinical applications, availability, I think, will be much uh, much earlier than the other two. Um, again, the measuring of how this is going, you know, how to determine if it's going to heal or go, go on to non-union or become um, infectious, That all that has to be worked out yet. But to have that available clinically would just be a game changer. 
Yeah, I, I think many speakers during the conference, excuse me, have said this. Uh, yesterday, uh, Daniel Kraft said it, I think, the most clear. He said, we don't want data, we want insights. And I thought that was really powerful. How I have crudely said that before is, I only want actionable data. Mm -hmm. I only want the data that tells me what to do next. And I want you to turn all the other lights off. And you guys talk about them when I'm not there. Um, but this is where we are in the process. We want actionable data only because otherwise there's so much noise you can't see. Remember to vote for this paper and uh, score them. Go to the last part of this segment. See, you want to take us? Yes. Uh, when we look at uh, what, was, what this is going to be in, in 15 years, I just wanted to get your impressions on the three technologies that were that we were uh, shown to or were provided to us how do you think that these will adapt and adjust and which ones do you think will be uh, most applicable soonest me uh, um yeah I, where we're going to be in 15 years it all has to be passive so everything you heard you know the first paper was about batteryless and wireless it all has to be passive using technology that we already have i mentioned that nfc chip that everybody already reads on their phone that i didn't even know existed until somebody sold me one of these. And so it has to all be passive, it has to be collected. Then we, not we, you, uh, ha have to do all the important work of assimilating that data. If I had more time, I'd talk about sequence to sequence neural networks and things like, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, we have to figure out what the data means, then we have to deliver the insights. But the only ones that are gonna break through, to your point, Lee, the only ones that are gonna break through are the ones that are passive. Because every time you have to ask somebody to do something or they have to plug them in or, you know, the more labor intensive it gets, the more difficult it is. You know, we talk about sensors now and the, the incredible presentation earlier from Google about wearable sensors. And it's incredible. And if you put it in a shoe, it's okay because they're going to wear their shoes when they run probably. But once you ask them to strap it on, you've introduced another barrier. And so we're going to get fragmented information and you guys will figure out how to do a lot with very little data. I applaud you for it. But the reality is, is the best data is going to be passive and it's going to be easily transferable back and forth. Yeah, I would agree. I think what I think the thing that we hopefully will have, which we'll need, is the ability to, you know, identify these exciting new technologies that are growing, you know, growing in maybe in an academic context and to cultivate them or moving into clinical trials and uh, hopefully partnering with industry for funding uh, clinical studies and FDA approval. And, and so there's a model the NIH has developed as kind of a resource center where projects, it's, it's like a um, hands-on SBIR program where you've got experts who are knowledgeable of the, all aspects of commercializing technology like this. They work with the inventor really early on, so they're not wasting a lot of time doing an animal study that's not going to get them anywhere in terms of getting that investment that's going to require to get past that valley of death. So if we can build communities that help these young entrepreneurs with these ideas really crystal clear, identify a clinical question, um, work with clinicians who are knowledgeable in that area, uh, think about things like regulatory scale up and, and have a story that they can tell to investors and partners to, to move it along. That would be really valuable because I think academics don't get it. They don't understand that part of it. They understand the technology and maybe putting something in a rat, but uh, actually getting it into the patient a lot of times that's outside their, their uh, sweet spot. So, and considering where we are now, how long do you think it will take to develop this type of technology and the data behind it uh, to validate it? Will we be able to accomplish that by 2037? Well, but before the conference, I would have said no. Um, I think the reality is, is we're a whole lot further down the road than people like me realize. So I, as a clinician, what I see clinically is wearable sensors and step counts. 
and uh, I don't want to offend anybody in the room. I really don't care about step counts uh, <laughs> unless unless it correlates directly to actionable information. So we have to close this loop on data. So I, I would tell you, will we get there in uh, 15 years? We should. And how it's going to change my practice is to have actionable objective data in the operating room that directly correlates to patient outcome. But to do that, you have to, you know, achieve objective data in the operating room and you have to have objective data after. So it's really that link that Dr. Beanie was talking about earlier. It has to be a closed loop system. And, and yes, I, what I have heard already at this conference is we can close the loop, but we don't have enough people talking about the entire loop cycle. We're talking about this loop cycle and this, we have to link it up. Yeah, and I think um, NIH also recognizes the challenges having enough data. Um, another point that was raised earlier, and there's programs now to generate large data sets that are publicly available. They're AI, ML friendly, so that people can have access to it. So I mentioned over the next you know, five years, there are going to be you know, thousands of data sets that include biomechanics, but then also include biomarkers, blood, saliva, stool samples, et cetera. They can then be looked at together in ways that are you know, using fair principles. So I, I think having those data is going to be really the missing link that we, we have the tools now. Maybe there's clinical insight, but we really need data sets to really piece this together. Perfect. You can see some of the results here. I see that you are moderately enthusiastic. We haven't convinced you that to jump into the sensor world, but you know maybe we will. But let's see also who is the winner among these three. There you go. Osteosurface Electronics uh, has the awardee. I want to thank you, my panelists, Jeff, Corey, and Lee. You stay here. We'll move to the next session. <laughs> Okay, so next session is on AR, VR, XR. We have listened and uh, hear a lot about it. With us today is uh, Sigur Bourbon from UCSF and uh, uh, one of the maximum experts on XR and uh, VR, Luis Rosenberg. Thank you for being with us. So Sigur, you want to say a couple of words about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Sigurd Bourbon. I'm Warren Spine Churches at UCSF. We've got a big interdisciplinary spine group that includes non-operative care, neurosurgery, and orthopedic surgery. And um, we've done a lot of work with uh, image guidance uh, in our surgeries and uh, really filed uh, some pretty advanced techniques uh, that include augmented reality and some of the technologies we'll talk about. Perfect. Louis. I am Louis Rosenberg. I've been involved in uh, virtual reality and augmented reality for uh, over 30 years now. I uh, started in 1991 at Stanford and NASA and then uh, the U.S. Air Force. And then in 1993, I founded uh, one of the early virtual reality companies, Immersion Corporation, uh, which I ran for uh, over a decade. And then in 2004, I founded an augmented reality company called Outland Research. And uh, right now, I am uh, the CEO of an artificial intelligence company called Unanimous AI. Perfect. Okay, let's get to it. First paper, trauma patient care simulation using extended reality technology in the hybrid emergency room system. Yeah, so just briefly as a summary for those who hadn't read this, this is an idea of a hybrid emergency room system. So a HERS system, uh, which has got a CT scanner and um, essentially does a whole body CT in about 45 seconds. And this gives the opportunity to have real-time angiography, real-time assessment of uh, intra-abdominal injuries, chest injuries, and actually a superimposition of some of the bony anatomy with some of the soft tissue anatomy 
And so in the setting or in the system, there's the opportunity for multiple disciplines being in the ER room at the exact same time. So you might have a cardiologist, a surgeon, an interventional radiologist, uh, ER specialists, all there together, getting data uh, simultaneously. So I thought that this was a terrific simulation. They showed in the paper that uh, they gave a simulation of 33-year-olds who had jumped seven stories and had um, massive intra-abdominal injuries, including vascular injuries. And in the simulation, they actually showed that they were able to more accurately assess the uh, quantity of blood flow and that the triage of the procedures in an intra-aortic balloon pump and occlusion procedure, uh, orthopedic procedures, that the way they triage those procedures was actually done differently with the information that this HERS gave them than they would have done it in the absence of that information. And very specifically, they actually addressed the renal vessel uh, rather than one of mesenteric vessels because they more accurately able to assess the amount of bleeding from that renal vessel. And they hypothesized that this might actually have a major impact on mortality. And in general, the adoption of this type of technology in emergency rooms, there is some early evidence to suggest that this reduces mortality. Perfect. Louis. Yeah, no, so I thought this was a great example of augmented reality. And um, so, so the way this system worked is they would take the real-time CT scan, and then they would allow the doctors and all of the surgeons were wearing augmented reality headsets, allow them to basically have x-ray vision in real time. And, and this was a, a study, so they actually used a mannequin in their simulation, but it was a mannequin. All the doctors are, are standing around the mannequin with augmented reality glasses, and they can see the medical imaging in real time in the exact location, co-located with the body parts of the mannequin. So they're basically looking into the patient's body in real time. And what's to me was most exciting about this, this example was that all of the doctors had the headsets. So they, they were looking at the same thing, but they were looking at it from their own perspectives. So they were standing where they would normally be standing, looking at the same image, able to have a conversation about it, able to point at things, able to do planning in real time around the same three-dimensional image uh, between them. And you can compare that to if they had to be looking at an image on a screen, everybody looking at the screen, looking back at the patient, trying to do those mental transformations in their head. And they're all making different mental transformations because they're standing on opposite sides. This gets rid of all of that. And so it really shows that this is the way medical imaging should be. Intent, you think of 2037, we'll look back at a time when people actually had to turn and look at a screen to see information. And it's not just right there co-located with the patient, we'll, we'll think that that's primitive. But that is that is the direction that we're headed. It, uh, it's a great, a great example. And uh, the participants in this study uh, found it to be very usable and worked well for them. Thank you. So, yeah, this is, uh, was incredible technology. It was, it was fun to read this very short synopsis and then try to visualize what it would be like in that operating room with this multi-trauma patient. I love how they uh, detailed very specific applications uh, and, and identified uh, vascular injuries that, uh, that perhaps would not have picked up otherwise. So I want to break this down to the practical. You know, what is the cost for something like this? And based on the cost or just the, and maybe Lewis, you can explain what, what it looks like uh, in the OR, how much area it takes up, et cetera. How practical is this uh, to put it into a community hospital, for example? So this particular example is one where the level of registration between the imagery and the patient doesn't have to be super precise. It's informational to the doctors. It's allowing them to, to have conversations about it. And so, and actually the expensive 
part of it. And so if you if you don't have to have super precise, and we'll talk about some papers where you do, it's not expensive, and it's using hardware that's getting less and less expensive very, very quickly. I mean, right now we're talking about headsets that are on the order of, of thousands of dollars, which is still not a lot. And five years from now, we'll be talking about headsets that are hundreds of dollars. So we are in now in a period of rapid trajectory of this technology getting cheaper because consumer-grade products will be coming out in high volumes, and that will just bring down the price of all the, all the technology. I think in the paper, they suggest about $150 per case was the incremental cost uh, that they had estimated in using this. What I'm interested in with this technology, because it's a great simulation and great to have information we are not switching from a screen that shows the CT only to a screen that shows or, or CT to chest only or CT to abdomen, you get the whole body on it. But what I'm interested in is how accurate this would be for actually doing an embolization. They didn't really address that because at some point you'd have to have some type of a fiducial on there to actually uh, locate, localize the patient. I'm not sure whether or not this hologram would be very useful for actually doing the procedures. They had hypothesized it might be, but I think there's a couple of steps that would need to be done before this actually became useful for anything other than gathering information, which I think is certainly useful for every specialty in a room to have the same information is useful, but to actually do procedures, I don't think it's anywhere near there yet. Let's switch to the second paper. Clinical accuracy and initial experience with augmented reality-assisted pedicle screw placement. So the objective of this paper was to perform a retrospective review of the first 28 consecutive patients who underwent AR-assisted pedicle screw in the thoracic lumbar sacral. So this is a, a test of a system that's called the Augmetic System. We've actually uh, trialed this at UCSF as well. This is a head-mounted camera that gives an augmented reality image. It's a see-through type of platform. So rather than a video-assisted uh, platform or a video see-through, it's actually a direct see-through. So we don't have to look at a screen. We can look directly at the patient. We have information superimposed. It's, uh, again, a head-mounted system. So three different centers, it was uh, Hopkins, Jefferson, and University or Washington University of St. Louis. Uh, they did 28 consecutive patients. They actually enrolled 32, but four patients there were technical problems with. They did an intraoperative CT. In one case, you couldn't get the CT to actually register. In two other cases, the body habitus of the patient, they couldn't get the fiducial to sit properly. So there were some technical problems that we actually didn't, didn't have quite that high a rate of technical problems in our experience with this. The screw accuracy was, was pretty good. You know, right now we're expecting in freehand placement, about 93% of our screws would be within two millimeters of accuracy. In their case, uh, they had hit about, the, or they hit 98%, which is a little bit better than uh, recorded rates for freehand. Interestingly, robotic accuracy is actually the least accurate, about 91% with robotic accuracy. So this uh, was a um, early experience from three different centers that showed 98% accuracy. It showed a, a basically a linear error of about two millimeters and an angular error of about two degrees. And those numbers are worth looking at for the, we'll talk about for the next paper, uh, but those, those are numbers that are consistent with uh, other technologies right now. Lewis. Yeah, so I thought this was also a, another really good example of uh, augmented reality application. The last paper we're talking about giving x-ray vision. In this case, it's giving additional cues, navigational cues to the doctors so that they can find places, uh, find the placement locations. And, uh, and so it's, it's like giving a superpower to to the doctors where instead of having to, again, look at different screens uh, and do things completely freehand, it's giving information 
that is allowing the placement of this of these targets. And remarkably, it's you know it's a free this was a freehand process, and with this data, it still was highly accurate. And I think again, it goes to the to the idea that we're getting better and better at registering this 3D volumetric overlays to the actual patient. In this case, the, the registration was done with physical markers attached to the patient, but they were able to get very high accuracy. And I personally think that this, this just general idea of providing assistive naviga navigational information, even abstract information that allows careful placement in real time without having to look away, without having to change your attention, without having to reorient yourself, I think there's that's just a general trend across many, many different applications. It's an interesting trend that you're pointing out. So you call this freehand because it's, it's an augmented reality assisted platform. So it's a navigated platform and you're calling it freehand. It, it shows a, just a generational shift that that because freehand to me is, is no navigation at all. Right. And, and that's, that's what the standard was when I said 93%. Now, if we don't use a, a robot, if we're only using augmented reality as freehand, right? Right. <laughs> I, I was wondering, I, I didn't get this from reading the article, but, uh, uh, would this add additional time to the surgery and uh, how much it, it, or did it save time? So I could address that a little bit. Uh, they didn't, as you say, didn't address it in the article. Um, they did address the cost issue, which you get to. But in terms of time, right now, the addition of time for well, the way they did this, they did an interruptive spin uh, with the arm to have a fiducial on for the spin. And that certainly costs time. And that's typically, that could be as much as 12 to 15 minutes. So if you're going... Uh, T10S1, that might be two or even three spins. Uh, so that could be 15 or even 20 minutes to actually get the images in the operating room. But then there is some time saving with regard to per screw. You can generally be a little bit faster uh, with, with uh, the addition of the augmented reality. One of the things they did point out was cost, and uh, the estimated cost for this is about $1,500 per case, which is sort of an interesting number by comparison to the hologram, which was $150 per case in the emergency room that this would be 10 times as much, which it seemed a little bit much uh, as an estimate. I was a little bit surprised by, by that number. It's $150,000 for the system and with disposables and, uh, and cameras, but uh, $1,500 per case. Okay, let's move to the next one. Head-mounted augmented reality platform for markless orthopedic navigate. This is to develop an HMD-based AR navigation platform to support both video see-through and optical see-through mode. So this is a super technical article, and uh, for those of you who really want to look into some information about uh, the AR headsets, the uh, RGBD cameras, and uh, how they communicate with one another, then, then I recommend this. I think, Fabrizio, if you had said that there was math involved, I might not have volunteered. Or I might not have graded this one quite as highly, <laughs> but it, actually, there's some really useful information about here. What they did is they had an accuracy of ephemeral drilling, so creating an osteochondral defect and how accurate is the uh, drill alignment uh, in creating that uh, defect. What was interesting to, to me about this was that it wasn't terribly accurate at all, as despite the incredibly sophisticated technology, a real-time camera, it was about seven millimeters of both angular or linear deviation and uh, seven degrees, or I think six degrees of angular deviation. So much less accurate than the augmentic system was in the spine. So while this seems to be a technology that could be quite interesting in terms of actually wearing a camera and being able to be markerless. What I love about this is not actually having to have a fiducial, right? The, they really emphasize the cost of a fiducial. If we're going to look at drilling femur, 
putting a pin somewhere distal to where we're working, that pin getting moved during surgery, the uh, perhaps extra incision and maybe some morbidity that might be associated with this. Everybody loves the idea of being markerless, but in this instance, uh, the accuracy, I think, was really quite compromised. I think there are some technologies that are doing that better, though. Luis? Yeah, I thought this was an exciting paper that I think it's early in, in the development of this technology, but clearly they're addressing one of the big issues with, with augmented reality in all fields where you're trying to register the virtual image and, the real, and a real object. One way to do it is with markers. Obviously, in this case, the markers go to patients, expensive and time consuming. And the other problem with the markers is that they, you can't obscure the marker. And so now it puts uh, constraints, line of sight constraints in your space. And so they took a completely different approach, which is to say they could save time and money and effort and reduce constraints if they could get rid of the markers and use a camera to actually do, do it in real time with, uh, with deep learning. And so they're looking, they're taking real-time images of the patient and with deep learning, registering the virtual image to the real image. It's not as accurate, but it's actually remarkably accurate when you consider how they're doing it. <laughs> so, so they're doing it with a relatively low-cost camera and some sophisticated software, and they're getting pretty close. And so I would say if we're looking, you know, 10 to 15 years out, this is the way it will be done. I feel confident that the technology will improve to a point where you don't need these are the extra steps of physical markers that are affixed, but with all optical. It's, it's really clear that what needs to happen is better accuracy, perhaps seeing less of the bone. They didn't really specify how much of the femur you needed to actually see, but that's the real challenge, especially, for example, an anterior posterior hip or uh, a deeper incision. Uh, how much bone can you see a spine incision, for example? And, uh, and again, the, the accuracy uh, being off, uh, I think probably indicates some problems with the, the fact that it's a virtual image. And, there's sort of two steps removed, right? It was an a interesting article. It was incredibly technical. A lot of uh, acronyms that uh, were, at, after a while, I got lost uh, trying to follow the alphabet soup. Uh, but it had one take-home message, and that was the advantages that markerless uh, navigation will provide versus uh, you know, drilling, et cetera. And the, the question here is how long, and I think, Lewis, you did address this to a degree. You might want to talk a little bit more about that. How long will it take to really perfect that? I mean, I would say that within, within five years, maybe 10 years, I mean, the, the, it's, it's completely software solution. So there aren't hardware barriers to it. It's really about the deep learning, the image analysis. It's improving quickly. They've, from a technologist perspective, and I know from a medical perspective, you might look and say, oh, it's, the accuracy is bad. From a technologist perspective, it's actually pretty amazing how, <laughs> how accurate they got. And they're really just starting. So I would be surprised if within five years, they're not full, fully within the range of other methods. The other major limitation is you improved is time of it, right? So using the optical see-through technique, it took about 15 seconds to actually get this, uh, get the orientation. And it was actually fully almost a minute using the video suit. That's a minute in the operating room, isn't it? Well, so looking forward in 15 years in the future, I'm going to suggest, and uh, you can comment on this, that uh, the limiting factor in the adoption of uh, these technologies is really how the system is going to adjust to it. How are we going to train surgeons? How are we going to uh, be able to uh, apply this and uh, have it placed in hospital systems that uh, is affordable? So what are the obstacles that have to be overcome, particularly uh, in training uh, physicians to adopt this technology? Maybe I'll start in terms of what are some of the obstacles. And I don't know what movie that picture's from, but 
you need to have somebody on the service staff who's willing to uh, really be the person who suffers through a learning curve, right? And, and every, every hospital has got to have somebody who goes through training and radiology technicians, who goes through the uh, early inefficiencies of that. And um, at UCSF, we certainly went through that learning curve, but there's always going to be a bit of a learning curve and any, adopting any new technology initially slows things down. And, and there are accuracy problems early on. So I think overcoming that is going to be a, a major barrier at the time for some of this in terms of capturing an image, being able to actually in real time uh, use that image to guide a procedure, something that uh, right now is, is, is for many of these technologies that we saw a little too slow. And obviously the accuracy is got to be somehow better than what we as an index. I, mean, I think there's two issues. There's the workflow, especially when you have to capture imagery, and, and I can't speak to. And, and the other side of it is the usability, the, the expectation of users, the surgeons, when they're using augmented reality headsets. I think ultimately it will take very little training, and I think it actually will take very little motivation because the expectations will change pretty quickly over the next 10 years. You know, right now, we, we're in a world where we expect digital content to be restricted on a screen, and we have to go to the screen and look at that content. And I think 10 years from now, we'll be in a world where we expect the content to be at the location we want it to be uh, placed there with augmented reality. And, and as the culture changes, it's going to change for everybody's profession. They're going to want those benefits in the operating room, but in you know, countless other professions where right now you have to continually look away from what you're doing to digital content and then reorient yourself. And, and augmented reality is going to solve that. Another driver for this, so not a barrier, but a driver is the fact that there's much less tolerance for error. So if you miss a pedicle screw, for example, and there's, there's very little tolerance for that right now. All right. So we're wrapping up. Can we have Slido on? Perfect. Okay. So we did a little better to intrigue you in this AR and XR. Let's see how we do with the papers. Nice. So we got your attention. That's fantastic. I'm very happy. All right. XR based hybrid patient care is the winner. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023 when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.